Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This time, I have a special discussion with Ricardo Pelophone from Broadcat, where we talk a little bit about compliance myths and a few other things that I think turned out to be a rather interesting conversation, which you'll hear in just a second. A couple of program notes first, as we are still kind of winding our way through the last ebbs of the summer season, as you loyal podcast listeners probably have noted, our schedule has been not quite as weekly as it was during the fall and springtime. We miss a week here and there, and I apologize for that. I try to get this out every week, but I'm hoping that we can get back to our sort of regularly scheduled programming here as we get into the fall, as we get amped up for things like the SEC event in, in Las Vegas and other things that are going to be happening. And there's lots to talk about, and, and I recognize that. But I did want to also take a moment and thank everybody again for continuing to download the podcast and listen. Encourage everybody, as always, if you've got questions or comments or suggestions, please do feel free to provide those to us. We are always interested in what our listeners think of what we're doing, but also ideas that you might have for us to maybe take things in slightly a different direction. And as I said at the beginning of the summer, I wanted to kind of do things a little bit differently than we had during the fall and the spring. We've had a couple of interesting episodes and, and, and talked about some different things here during the summer, and this conversation you're about to hear is no different from that. And I'll have a few more sort of summer additions, if you will, as we close out August here. And then when we get into September and start planning for the fall, we'll uh, get back to regular order, as they say. But thanks again to all the loyal listeners, and please enjoy this conversation. So Ricardo, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited that this is going to be a special conversation. Yes, a special, <laughs> not just a regular conversation, a special conversation. Because because you've already you've already answered my three questions a, a few months back. And for for people who haven't listened to Ricardo's answering our, our three questions, please do so. But we wanted to talk specifically a little bit today about compliance program myths. This is one of those areas that I we've had conversations personally before about. And also, if you've ever happened to see Ricardo speak at an SCCE event or another event, you've, you've probably heard him touch on this topic. Because he's taking a different direction with his uh, organization, with Broadcat. But that's something, and we, we were just talking about this offline before we started recording, it's something that we're hearing a lot from the Department of Justice before Wei Chen left, but also just generally speaking, the expectations around compliance programs are changing. But, but while those expectations are changing, there's still a lot of lingering myths, if you will, things that must happen that many of us would like to see exploded because they probably aren't all that helpful for making an effective program, either under the sentencing guideline standards or any other measurement that you would take. The first one, and I think it's a good one that we had talked about discussing, is this notion that if you're spending a lot of resources, spending a lot of time and effort, if you're working really, really hard, then that means that you have an effective program. You have an, a, pro, a program that meets standards. So Ricardo, you know, I'm, I've, I've got a pretty good-sized budget. I'm deploying a lot of things. I'm, I'm constantly busy. That must mean I have a good, uh, effective program, a good program, right? <laughs> uh, no. And I think it's interesting when you talk to people and they'll say, oh, you know, I think our program is pretty mature. That's some of the stuff that we hear. It's like, you know, we've been doing it for a while. We've got a code of conduct. We do a bunch of online training. 
we've got a hotline. Those things are just things you do. And that doesn't, it's not a measure of whether any of that stuff works. And so let me go even a little further and say that. I think it is it's very widely known among all people that work in compliance, like nobody wants to have a check the box compliance program, but I think it is a myth that check the box means minimum effort. And yeah. the reality is like you can work very, very hard and spend a ton of money and still have a check the box program because check the box like that, that, that has nothing to do with how hard you're working. It has to do with what you are doing and why. And mm-hmm. so, for example, check the box means that you were doing something for the sake of doing it. And that thing you're doing might be like really expensive and a huge amount of work, but you're just doing it for the sake of being able to say that you did it. And I think, I mean, in training, which is like my wheelhouse, I think we see this a lot. We see people that have enormously expensive e-learning programs and like all these like very long modules that push out to people, but it's not tied to like, and this is what happens because we do these things. Like, well, you know, we just think it's important that we do five hours of training for employee per year. Well, that's, that, that's still checking the box because you're doing it for the sake of doing it, not mm-hmm. for the goal of compliance, which is risk reduction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a, a good example of this that's still in fresh, still pretty fresh in everybody's mind. I said six months ago or eight months ago, most compliance officers would kill for the budget that Wells Fargo probably has for, for compliance and ethics. And they have probably, because they're a large bank and large banks tend to have a lot, uh, a pretty significant compliance staff and they have regulatory compliance, which is a whole different animal, uh, understandably. But, but even if you just were to trace the dollars that an organization like Wells Fargo spent only on sort of straight ahead workforce training around compliance, code of conduct, kind of, you know, Taking taking you know the financial piece out, taking regulatory compliance out of the puzzle, that budget is still, I'm sure, even before the problems that happened at the branches became uncovered, was huge. But it was not effective. I don't think anybody would argue that that was an effective program. Sure, I think that you know the the issue is doing stuff is not valuable. Doing the right stuff is valuable. And so I'll say I've, I've kind of stolen that from from Wei Chen. So at Compliance Week this year. They had a bunch of like ex-government people on stage, and Wei Chan is in the audience. And one of the ex-government people from one of the enforcement agencies was asked some question about like I don't know something like you know what guidelines for what your program should look like, and, and that person made a comment about how oh well you know you should be looking at what other companies are doing that are your size and make sure it's relatively aligned. And someone gave Wei Chan the microphone, and so and then she doesn't she didn't stand up, so it's just like it's like the voice of God coming over the. <laughs> the PA, which is awesome. And she was like, yeah, doing more, you know, I'm way 10 and uh, doing more is not better, smarter is better. And that's all we're saying here, which is that like, you can, like, it, it, doing a lot of work is, does not mean that your program works, nor does it mean that you're not just doing a check the box thing. It's like, what are you doing and why? Can you tie what you're doing to some kind of business problem that you are solving? And, yes. and I think that, that's the gap where like, just doing compliance training, for example, by itself is not helpful. It's a, it's a cost. Like you have to be able to say, we're doing training because we have this business problem. And by the way, we've thought through and decided that training is the best way to solve it. Not a control, not a policy, but training. And the amount of money we're spending on training is less money than the problem cost. 
That's what yeah. business leaders want to hear is that like, hey, and that's what I think the government wants to hear too, is that you thought through critically and you're identifying compliance as a tool, not a solution. Because all the seven elements of a program are tools to reduce risk. Like just doing those seven things is not going to get you very far to spending money and time on stuff. Those things should be to the end of reducing risk somehow. Yeah, this is something that that I've heard you speak on a couple of times before, and and I think it's a it's a, a really valid point. Is this isn't like you know compliance is 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 not unique or special or somehow absolved of the same business rules every other part of the operation should be operating under, and so you don't just throw a bunch of money at a problem or a bunch of resources and and hope that that is sufficient that people will see that as a successful program. You have to be able to measure and justify what you're doing. I think more and more leadership and organizations are expecting that anyway. So you need to be prepared for that if that's not already the case. But it's exactly right. You know, you, you don't think about this at its core any differently than you would any other business problem. Because we're so used to being told, you guys aren't a profit center, you guys just cost money. And so we kind of, I think, we collectively, those of us in compliance over the years have kind of adopted that into our into our psyche that we're somehow different and and don't need to operate under the same principles uh, kind of underlying principles of how you conduct business, how you marshal resources, how you audit and and investigate and and that's just not the case. Maybe you're not going to make a bunch of profit, but maybe you are going to actually save some money if you can put in some controls or train or do whatever it is you need to do. So I think that's a really good point is that we need to stop thinking that we're uh, you know some sort of odd function we're part of the business function ultimately. Right. And, and that's that's how you get more budget at account anyway. Is that uh-huh. like you show that you know I did this one thing. It saved us x dollars. Give me more things, I will save you X plus whatever dollars. Yeah. That, that's how budgets work. Like I think, I think to some extent, there, you know, we can talk to folks that, I, I, I get the feeling they think the budget is something that gets handed down from Mount Olympus. And it's yeah. like, well, this is what Zeus said it was this year, so this is all we have. Like, well, no, you, you have to make the case for it using numbers because that's how, you know, business is about making money. Like, you yeah. know, we, I, I think sometimes we can get so wrapped up in our world of, Ethics, we forget that it is corporate compliance and ethics. Businesses are formed to make money for their stakeholders. There's, you know, there's other agendas as well. But like at, at its core, if you're not making money, the business goes away. And so when you want to explain the value of your program, it should also be in dollars so that people can compare it to like, oh, you know, we've got this money. This is what the marketing team needs. This is what the compliance team needs. Let's see the business cases they've put forward. I promise you that the marketing team just doesn't show up at the end of the year and say, this is all the money we spent on advertising. We didn't measure if any of it worked, but like, <laughs> give us more money. We'll continue to spend it on advertising. Like, they've got, I guarantee they'll bring all these crazy metrics about how, like, you know, we had our logo on this fast car and like, it was on TV for 10 seconds and that's worth Y dollars. Yeah. And like, that, that's going to be based on assumptions, of course, but like, at least they're trying. Like, I think, I think some of it is, you know, I think there are definitely businesses out there that do not support compliance, but I also think there's a lot of businesses that would if the case was put before them and it's just not being made. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's, I think it's worthwhile to note that, you know, it's not just perhaps compliance officers and those responsible for compliance that kind of imagine compliance or the legal function outside of the business function. Certainly business people have that same misperception. So you got to educate you know, not only educate yourself potentially or, 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 or your sponsors potentially, if you already are 
understand this and are a believer, but educate the leadership of the organization if they sort of have that same misperception. Uh, so, and I was just about to say, yeah, and it's really tough because it does require you to learn their language a bit. And that's not something a lot of us are trained in. I mean, I'll, I'll be very honest that, like, I would be way, way, way better in-house right now than I was when I was actually in-house because now I've run a business. Yeah. And, like, that skill set, which I just had to learn when I, when I launched Broadcat, like, you are not taught. That's not something you're going to learn in law school or things from one of the compliance certifications, like, but that is, you know, that's selling what you do. And every other, every other department in your company is selling what they do. And yeah. so I think, you know, to an extent, like, I think just educating people, educating compliance people on this is how to make a basic financial model. And this is how to do just like basic business planning, which, by the way, that's actually the topic of my talk at the SEC in Las Vegas this year. Um, and mm-hmm. we're doing a, speaking with the same guy I spoke last year from Gibson Dunn. And our topic is, how to show your program works, but it's basically this is how to build a business case, like bottoms up, for, like what you're doing to show, like, oh, this is why we did this, and it saved us more money than not doing it. So you should give us more money, and we will fix more problems and save the company even more than we're spending. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's a, a great thing, a, a, new, a, a great skill for a compliance officer to develop is to make the business case, and you know you can start small. You can start with some specific examples. One that. I saw recently that I think is a good example to give you give some compliance officers an idea of what they might be looking for is I was working with a compliance officer with an organization that was considering expanding their business to Brazil, but then the legal department and the CEO got scared off because some other organizations in their similar industry got caught up in some of the anti-corruption scandals that were going on in Brazil over the last few years. And so they were like, well, we just don't know if we want to take a chance. Well, it was a per- it's, it, what the um, compliance officer did in this case is they put together a plan on how they would train the employees, how they would train third parties, how they would monitor what the costs would be for them to put together a top-notch anti-corruption program for their new Brazilian operation versus what they anticipated the revenues would be versus not doing it. And, and it was, you know, pennies to, you know, potentially gain significant market share in a growing market. And so I think that's an example of how you make a business case. You know, it's not only what you stopped from happening in an existing business, but but potentially lost business opportunities that, you know, could be calculated into a pitch that being made to to the executives of the organization, to the board of directors, to the audit committee, whomever it is, that it makes sense to invest a little bit, little bit here because it can be a business development tool, along with your marketing team, along with your you know development team, your acquisitions folks. Every you know you can be part of that puzzle in compliance because you can offer solutions that allow them to operate in environments where perhaps there's a little bit of heartburn because of the headlines or potential risks. Totally. And I want to pick up on one thing you said there, which is that you, you characterize that as like, as like a small business case. But like, I think everybody has to start there because I think one of the reasons that people have struggled with just providing met- like meaningful met- business metrics for their programs is they try and do it from an enterprise perspective, which is how not, like nothing works like that. I mean, if you think about like, you know, company financials, particularly for a lot of folks that are probably listening to this, if you're in a multinational company and you have a consolidated financial, like that's a roll up of all your like subsidiary financial statements, 
which themselves are like the sum total of all these little like unit by unit financials. It's not like your CFO just looks at the company at like a 10,000 foot level and says like, well, it felt like we were pretty profitable this year. So we'll go with that. Like it is, it's a lot of granular things added up. So I think that example you gave is an excellent one. And the effectiveness of the overall program is going to be a lot of things like that on a year by year basis added up. It's not going to be one metric of like, oh, well, we're doing this stuff. Therefore, the program is, you know, we, we think it's pretty good or you know, maybe it needs a little more work. It really is the sum of all the little things that you're doing because that's how everything else in your company works. It's always the aggregation of really granular data. Yeah. No, that, may, that totally makes sense. I'm going to shift gears just a little bit on another myth that, that I hear pretty frequently and I'm sure you hear pretty frequently. Particularly, it's common amongst in-house counsel who are responsible for the program. And, and it's particularly vexing to me because oftentimes in, in-house counsel that hold this, this myth in their head also have so many different responsibilities that it's, it's, it's actually kind of ironic that they believe, and here's the myth, that if there's a project that can be done in-house, usually by a lawyer, then it ought to be done in-house, that you ought not to go out to third parties. You know, the, the argument that I always give whenever I talk to somebody who's contemplating hiring me for services and they're on the fence because they're, for instance, wanting to rewrite their code of conduct and they're a experienced, usually a lawyer, experienced lawyer or, or, or compliance officer who could probably write a code of conduct and probably write a really good code of conduct. But the difference, the, the problem is, is do they really have the time and the resources to do it? And what I always say is you're not necessarily hiring expertise. You may be hiring expertise if you don't have it, but you're hiring time. You're buying my time. You're buying time that you don't have. You're buying resources you don't have. And, and this, is a, this is a common myth is that, you know, particularly lawyers, again, I like picking on lawyers, particularly lawyers feel like they should be able to do it all themselves. It's part of our makeup, part of our DNA. I don't know whether we learn it at law school or whether it's inborn, that's why we went to law school. But we feel like we can we can do it, we can do it all. I may not do it today, probably won't do it tomorrow, but someday, someday soon, we will do it. Can you talk a little bit about feeling like you should do everything in-house when you have the responsibility for a compliance program? Yeah, because like I was one of those lawyers when I was in-house. I wanted to do everything by myself. And like looking back, I'm like, wow, that was incredibly stupid. <laughs> I think so. Usually, you hear this phrase as a question like, you've got some kind of thing you're trying to do. This question is like, can we do this ourselves? And, like, I'm going to be a little harsh. Like, that is a really stupid question because the answer is always yes. Like, you can do everything about a compliance program yourself. Like, the first company where I was in house, we developed our own hotline software tool in house. So, like, you can do everything in house. So like that question itself is not meaningful because the answer is always yes. The smart question to ask is, should we do this ourselves? Yeah. And that's where you're going to get away from thinking like, you know, someone that is like, like let me give you like an analogy. That's going to, that takes you out of thinking like a doomsday prepper to like someone that lives <laughs> in a society with like, you know, division of labor, right? Because yeah. like you could you make your own clothes and like do all the stuff in case the power grid fails. But like most of us don't do that in our spare time. You could, but, you know, and there are people that definitely do. So it's possible. It's just like, but is that what you want to do? I, I think when you start asking the question, should we do this ourselves? That's when you see this myth of like, it's always good to do stuff in self. That's when it falls apart. 
Because it, what it forces you to think about is like, well, what's the best use of my time? And yeah. like the general rule I tell people is if you are sitting behind a desk, it is a bad use of your time. And so where I, where I, I look back and say I have regrets about how I did stuff, it's where I did a lot of things where I could have been out and start talking to employees more rather than doing what I could have easily outsourced or automated. And just because the prospect of like, you know, going and getting a vendor set up to do software or like hiring someone to do it for us, it's like, oh, it just feels easier to do it, do it myself. But the reality is that when you're in-house, there is one thing that you do that literally no one else can do. You cannot automate it and you cannot outsource it. And that is being an expert on your company. Yes. Like when you are in-house, your job is to be an expert on your company's business, company's people, its quirks, its processes, its facilities. You can't outsource that. And so when yeah. you're doing stuff like when you're doing all these things that can be outsourced easily, like you're taking time away from what you only you could be doing from your highest value. And so like that's and you know, this is let me let me use like us as an example, like broadcast, right? So there's like five of us. And I honestly thought that like by now there would be more of us, but we've been we we've really embraced like automation and process and outsourcing. And so I just we just haven't needed more people, which as a business owner is awesome. Because what and part of part of that was strategically the first first person I hired, um, Ryan, has a coding skill set. And so some of the stuff that I was doing before I hired him, he automated like right away because he was like, oh, I can write a script that does it for us. And yeah. so as a result, we have a lot of stuff that I would have been doing and definitely could have done myself that we've just found another way to do it because it's not the best use of my time. And I think this is where, this is where people get really, really off base. And I think kind of a related thing to this, and like, like someone always says this at a conference and it's painful, is someone will present on a topic like how to do more with less. Mm-hmm. And that's like the sister myth to this one, because the assumption is like, if you have a small team or not a lot of budget, your goal should be doing like as many things as possible. And what that means is you're doing like 20 things, not very well. And yeah. the, the, what the message you need to hear instead is like, do one thing really, really, really well and measure it, because that's where you're going to go back and say, look at what you gave me. This is what I did as a result because I was able to leverage my time the right way. So if you give me more budget and more headcount, I can do even more things. And so I think it is uh, both these things are related to the concept of like your time, like is your most valuable, valuable resource. And when you're the in-house person, your expertise in your company is your most valuable uh, value add to the company. And so I yeah. think that like, and if you're in the same position, like my company is, which I guarantee you are, if you're listening to this, in-house counsel, like you have a small team, you need to stretch that team. And that is not by having them do stuff that is not their highest value because, you know, the, your business side folks are going to see you as valuable when you're out there interacting with them and explaining your value to them. If you're sitting behind a desk writing a newsletter or like a crossword, like that's not very, that, like that's not going to be something that's going to reflect well on your team at the end of the year because no one's going to know that you did that. They want like, you need to be in front of your employees as much as possible. And that means really embracing outsourcing automation as much as you can. Yeah. And it also, uh, like you said, it allows you to be out. You know, this is one of the things I talked about in a podcast a few weeks ago is, uh, you know, taking the opportunity for some organizations. The summer is a time when there, there's, you know, a little bit of slowdown in, in activity. And, and, and I had suggested that that's a perfect time to get out and about because that's something that, you know, it sounds kind of simple, 
but there are a lot of compliance officers who are, are like what you suggested that they they are chained to their desk because they have these processes and systems and uh, responsibilities that they could either automate if they you know either had the internal resources to to do that or or paid somebody outside to automate or or doing projects that they really you know, ought not to do. And there are compromises to be made. Uh, you know, just going back to the simple one that I'm most familiar with, uh, code of conduct, if you're going to really, really focus on your code of conduct, you and your team really want the code of conduct to be different than what it is, then you have to ask yourself, do you really have the time to do it? Because the reality is, even if you hire somebody who's done a zillion codes of conduct, they're still going to need you. You're still going to be involved. It's still going to be take a portion of your time and your team's time to get a code of conduct project going, but to do everything, to take it all on when you've never done that before, it's something that you don't need to do. And it's something that, unless you have no option, obviously, but, but, it, but, it, but your results are going to be compromised, particularly if you have a day job. And, and I think that's the, the real thing that we're talking about here is I, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency, particularly with small to medium-sized companies, that when you're the general counsel or one of, you know, one of one or two assistant general counsels, that you're going to be a jack or Joe of all trades, that you're going to be responsible for, you know, managing all the uh, outside litigation. You're also responsible for, for, for compliance and probably also responsible for something else, two or three other things. And, and there's just this assumption that, you know, not universal, but a lot of executives, a lot of managers feel like a lawyer is a lawyer is a lawyer. If it has something to do with law, which compliance to a lot of people who haven't thought about it too deeply is, a, it has to do with law, just throw a lawyer at it, any lawyer will do. And as we all know, uh, those of us that are attorneys and those of us that aren't but have worked in compliance, that's not always the best solution. More lawyers are, are throwing a lawyer at a problem that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Let me, let me ask you this. So that type of job where it's like an in-house job where you have multiple different hats, like knowing what you know now, would you take one of those jobs? Well, from my current position, probably not because I, I enjoy what I'm doing. But, but beyond that, I, I, think, I think if you had a com- what you need from, a, from an organization is a commitment that that's not always going to be the case, right? You know, if it's a small enough organization, maybe you can do that still. But if it's a growing organization, like for instance, I'm in Austin, and you know it, it's not quite as hot a startup spot here as it is in Silicon Valley, but there's still a lot of startups. So if you were with an organization that was looking to build, you know, fifty fifty x in the next, you know, five years, and you know, go from fifteen employees to fifteen hundred employees, then you need to have a commitment from the from the executives that this is not. This is not the future. This is just now till we get 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 our get our feet under us. And you also, I think, honestly, have to have that the commitment about what we just talked about that they'd be willing to spend the dollars to do the things that you know to hire the people outside the organization to do the things we need to do. And that's not just compliance. That's like if you're planning to become a public company. I, you know, I, I could probably learn if I if I was forced to at gunpoint learn about being a securities lawyer, but that would not serve anybody's interests. So, so you've got to be you've got to have a commitment from the management. I think if you're being asked to take one of these multiple hat roles, that if if it's not the time now, at least sometime in the future, there's a commitment for those for either added resources internally or certainly being able to outsource when necessary. Yeah. 
Because because here's the thing, you know, when we saw the VW headlines six months ago, initially everybody's like, "Oh, compliance officer gets charged." Well, you dig into it a little bit. The guy was not really a compliance officer, as we understand it, in, in our space. But still, he had some compliance responsibilities. So we still don't have that case yet. You know, there's there's some lawyers that have been caught up in 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 uh, situations where they were involved with potentially involved with frauds and other other circumstances in their organizations. But that's the other thing too. And I did a podcast about this a few months ago too, about personal liability. That's the other thing you got to keep in mind in a situation like that. If you're hypothetically asked to come in and, and take over where there's a lot of balls in the air, you have to think honestly about your liability and the organization's liability. And and I think, again, commitment from the board, commitment from the from the leadership of the organization and honesty coming from the lawyer slash compliance officer at all times about what the situation is and be willing to, you know, make a noisy exit. That's the hard thing. You know, you go into a situation and the other thing that's, I think that, that we have to acknowledge here too, Ricardo is oftentimes you're sold a bill of goods <laughs> about what's, what the role and the position is and what the resources are. And you get there and you find out something different, right? So that's the other thing that's goes on here is to, is being willing you know, doing your best due diligence before you take on a role like that to to be sure that you have commitment and be willing to be honest at all times because otherwise you're going to be in a bad situation, the organization's going to be in a bad situation, and the expectations on both sides are going to be way off. Yeah, I think that's I think I think what you just said is really important and not said enough, which is the um, I, I think taking an in-house compliance role. So whether it's a multiple hat role or not, you have to be ready to walk away from it. And I think where people, I think where, where people can really get in trouble is where they take that multiple hat roll on after they've already been in the company for a while. And yeah. Maybe they've got, you know, I mean, and you have a lot of relationships and like maybe it's a public company and you've got like a bunch of best stock or whatever. That's a whole separate discussion, whether like that's even a good idea to have restricted stock as a compliance officer. But I mean, really, like, yeah. I mean, really, is it, yeah. is it a good idea to have a lot of, you know, a significant portion of wealth locked up? Because, because you, you, I mean, this is a point that, before I rabbit trail on that, <laughs> but the <laughs> point is that, like, as a compliance officer, your only really, real, like, real recourse is quitting. Yeah. And, and like, that, that's actually a really sobering thing that when I went in-house, when I left a law firm to, to go in-house, my wife and I had a discussion about that where I was like, you know, like, I, I think I trust these people, but I have no idea what's going to happen or what I'm yeah. getting into because like I've always worked at a law firm and yeah. um, we need to be in a position where I can quit with no notice financially. And that's how we lived from through both in-house jobs that had never had to exercise that. But like, I don't know how you can be effective otherwise. No. Like otherwise I just think like over time, you make compromise after compromise until you find yourself in the position where you do have personal liability. And then people like you and me are like, well, that guy wasn't really a compliance officer, which wasn't doing anything. He may have started off that way, or may have started off with good intentions. But like, if, I think where, where people get, get in trouble is not realizing that the decision, to, the decision to quit when you're asked to do something unethical or to approve something that you know is wrong it's really not a decision you make then. It's a decision you make like years before that and how you create incentives for yourself and how you arrange your finances and your lifestyle. And so I think one of the, and this is like, this is the reason why I think a lot of people don't talk about this, which is that this is really a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's no fun to be told this. Like, you know, but like it is like, 
you know, I mean, obviously the upshot of it is like, if you do it for a while, you can quit your job and start your own company and build a lot of money. Saved up. <laughs> so that's, that's the reality is that like, you know, you, you may have to quit and like without a job lined up. And I was in investigations, which is like, I think particularly high risk for that type of stuff is that if you, if you're taking that seriously and you're taking your, your personal integrity in that seriously, like you may just have to like walk out and like, you're not going to get a whistleblower award. No. And if you're a lawyer, you probably have privilege that's going to prevent you anyway. Maybe. I don't want to get down to a privilege and fraud exception rabbit hole. Or, but, like, but like, I think that in particular, it's like that piece of it. It's like, yeah, I think, I, think it's, I think it's fine to accept a job like that. But you need to have some red lines that can't be crossed. And you need to be willing to follow through on an ultimatum that, like, if this doesn't happen, I'm out. Because otherwise, as soon as, as, soon as, like, as, soon as you kind of give up ground inch by inch, it's going to keep happening. And oh, yeah. you're in a situation where, you know, I think sometimes you can, you can meet folks that are in this position from time to time where they're just kind of resigned to the fact that, like, well, this is just how it is. But like, yeah, but you've got personal liability, man. Like, you have to recognize that, like, you have decided to take a job where you, you're liable for stuff. And so that, that has consequences. And, like, some of those consequences can be really scary. And that requires you to, like, take that seriously and arrange your, arrange your personal affairs in a way that lets you rev- like recognize that as just the re- nature of the beast. Yeah, no, it's it's hard. I mean, because this is where the theoretical bumps up against the practical. Because as you point out, a lot of people come to these roles from something else. I mean, you go back and listen to all the interviews I did with in-house people over the last year. One of the questions I always always ask is the first question: How'd you get here? Because most people were not. Nobody ten years ago was doing this. And so a lot of people are coming up through the ranks and, and so they have a commitment to that organization. If they've been with that organization a long time, they have a lot of personal connections with a lot of the executives and managers. So it makes it even more complicated and more messy if something's happening that rises to the level where they have to put their foot down and the executive then says, sorry, we're going to go the other way. And so you don't have a lot of options other than to, to, to move, you know, vote with your feet, so to speak. And that's, that's really hard to do. I don't, it's hard to know how you would react in that situation until you're, you're in it. I've, I've happened to know of a couple of compliance officers who have done that. But like you said, they were in a position where they weren't going to go hungry the next week. And that may not be everybody's situation. So that's a pointy, pointy question. But I think if your your hypothetical is I'm looking at the opportunity, I think that's the point where you determine how again to the best of your ability, doing your own due diligence, how confident you are that there's support there. That you know even if it's not going to and it's not going to turn overnight, you're not going to get the budget you want overnight. But that there's a commitment from the board on down, and that's another thing too. Is I think if you're taking on a position in an organization where you're going to be responsible for the compliance program. Even if the person or persons hiring you are the general counsel or the chief auditor or the CEO or somebody else, I, you know, depending on the size of the organization, the complexity of the situation and what my role is, I'd want to talk to the board members because ultimately that's who you're responsible to. And if they don't care, don't know, don't have that commitment, that's a bad sign, particularly if you're being asked to do a lot. Yeah, and I think, you know, absolutely. And I, and I think too, like, do, you should do as much due diligence as you can. You should ask tough questions of the people. But you also need to recognize that people may not be there tomorrow. Yeah. And so, like, when I was in house, I was fortunate enough to work for 
I, I had great people that I was working for. So like I never, you know, the, I think coming into it, you know, being an outside lawyer specializing in internal investigations, you know, my entire world was when stuff went totally sideways. So I was very sensitive to that. That's all I'd ever seen. And so, you know, I, I, I was really lucky or fortunate, I suppose, that like those companies where I was at, like just had leaders that were very much committed to, to integrity at the top. But I also recognized that CEOs change really fast. And so like the person that you're working for, maybe she's awesome, but she may take another role at a bigger company or retire. And then you may have someone come in that's totally different. And you can talk to compliance people that have found themselves in that position where it's like, well, I thought, and I think Donald Bohm says this really well, but our GC is, is totally awesome. Like you may have an amazing general counsel, but you know, that general counsel may not be there a year from now. And like that, that's the thing you need to prepare yourself for. So you're doing, you're, you need to do your diligence on what the world looks like right now, but be prepared for the fact that it may change overnight. And if the ground shifts within your feet and you're in a position, you need to be in a position where you might be able to move to if you had to. Yeah. Well, we kind of we kind of swerved away from myths, but I think this was a good conversation about something else that that is, as you say, is not talked about frequently enough, which is what do you do in those those complicated circumstances? But uh, I, I think the myth there is that compliance is like you know you don't have to make tough decisions or it's like a consequence free environment. I think everyone not, recognizes that's difficult, but not that you might have to actually quit. Or, or even more, more pointedly, it's not a, it's not a personal consequence for, for free environment. There, there are there, there are different personal personal consequences beyond just uh, being being the person being somebody that nobody wants to see around training time. Um, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for spending a few minutes with us, Ricardo. It's always a pleasure, and thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.